0: My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad. Uh, That you guys are here. Thank you very much for coming. Whether you are uh, been a devoted follower of Jesus for a long time, or you're kind of new to maybe coming back a little bit to church, we're just glad that you guys are here. Uh, How many of you guys uh, are aware that this summer is the Olympics? Raise your hand if you knew that this summer is the Olympics. Uh, Who forgot about it until I just now mentioned it? All right, we're about half and half. All right, all right. The Olympics are supposed to happen on the even-numbered years. Um, this was supposed to happen last year, uh, but COVID kind of screwed up everything in the whole wide world. Um, how many guys knew that the um, uh, Olympics were always on an even-numbered year? Who, who knew that? Also, who did? Who doesn't care? I, I just don't care. All right, just checking. All right, uh, the, the Olympics always make me think of my uh, grandfather. Uh, who never played in the Olympics? That's I said that like I was building up to, and he won silver in I don't know whatever, but uh, no. And, and this is actually a much sadder story because it was the summer that he died in 1984, which was a long time ago. Uh, I was just a child, a baby, um, of 14. But anyway, um, he 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 lived in Michigan. We lived in Florida, and uh, they told us that he's only got a couple of weeks left. So. Uh, my dad took off uh, from, from work, and I think he had prepared to take up a couple of months if that's what it took, but it was only four weeks. And we we, drew up, we drove up to Detroit, and we, we were in the hospital every single day. And my grandfather loved the Olympics. So every single time we walked into the, the uh, hospital room... <laughs> Almost said hotel room, but I, every time we went into the hospital room, the Olympics were on, and he was watching it. And he was—we we talked about that, that that summer. So every time you know the Olympics come around, it makes me remember uh, my my grandfather. Uh, what you might not know is that the Olympics existed before uh, the New Testament was written, and uh, the Apostle Paul act actually references uh, the games. Uh, they didn't call them the the Apostle Paul doesn't call them the Olympics, um, but he talks about the the race that we run and what he was referencing uh, as a Roman citizen. Uh, was that tradition of of the games. And um, so he he uses the Olympics as a metaphor uh, for what it looks like for us to live out our faith. Uh, And he references it every once in a while. But James, in in his book, the book of James, uh, the entire book is about the discipline that it takes to be a devoted follower of Jesus. Uh, Jesse Ventura famously said one time that he believed that Christianity was a crutch for the weak. And I would say it's only because homeboy never tried it on right? Uh, but the book of, book, of, book, of, book of, sorry, my brain, I, got, I even have coffee. Normally that settles the ADD down, but I'll start like three or four sentences in my head, and I stack them up. So that way I finish one, I know the next sentence, and then sometimes I'll start all three of them right in a row without finishing either one of them, and now I felt like I had to tell all of you that. I don't know why I even told you that. Um, but the book of James, the whole book is on the discipline, um, the, the, the personal preparedness, uh, that goes into the games, right? But it goes into our relationship uh, with Jesus. Now, there there were two disciples named James. Uh, one was Peter, James, and John. That's the one, one, most famous one. Peter, James, and John in the sailboat. If you raised in Sunday school, you might remember little Sunday school song, Peter, James, and John in the sailboat. Anybody? All right, just me and one man in the back. Thank you for your support. Appreciate that very much. I'm not singing the rest of the song to any of you. All right, so it's Peter, James, and John. He's the most famous James uh, he, his, his brother was was uh, uh, was John. James and John were brothers. Uh, Peter uh, was kind of like the, those three guys were the, probably the three closest guys of, of the disciples to Jesus. Their their dad was Boanerges. That's an un, un, unfortunate name. Uh, his nickname was Thunder. So they were referred to as thun, sons of Thunder. And most biblical scholars think that that's because their dad was a loud mouth. That's honestly true. They think he was just a really loud person. So they're like, you're you guys are the sons of big mouth. Is this Essentially, what they were known as, sons of Big Mouth. Uh, then there's another James named James, uh, James son of Alphaeus. That, that's, the other, that's the other James that was a disciple. This James is not either one of those two. Uh, this James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 tells us uh, that Jesus had at least four brothers. We have all four of their names. Their names are um, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Uh, I think it's kind of ironic that Jesus' baby brother had the same name <laughs> as the guy who would betray him and send him to the cross. But that was his fourth brother's name. So uh, James, uh, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 says this. And then it said that he had sisters. So it uses the plural uh, sense of the word. And so we know that he had at least two sisters. Which means that Jesus would have been the oldest brother because Mary was a virgin when she was pregnant by the, by the Holy Spirit uh, with Jesus, uh, but she didn't, after Jesus was born, Joseph was still going, hey, so now can we have kids right now? Now can we right and then so they had four more boys and two two girls and some of you guys are freaking out because you're just now finding out that she wasn't a perpetual virgin and so you're struggling with the idea of that but that's actually in the Bible so her and Joseph did have conjugal relations now that fifth and sixth graders fifth graders have become sixth graders and have joined us today I'm being very careful with what I say Um, but then they they had so Jesus was the oldest of seven at least seven depending on how many he actually had which back in that day I don't know if that's a large family by our standards it would be a pretty large family i think it's sad though like some of you guys you're the oldest son but you didn't get your dad's name but your younger brother he got your dad's name i don't know if there's anybody here like that so with okay in the back michael delaney you're the oldest but but your brother got this, the the junior name right so same thing with james he's the oldest biological son of Joseph, but it's his little brother that gets named Joseph, and he gets stuck with the name the name James. Now, according to John chapter 17, the reason why James was never a disciple of Jesus is because James didn't believe Jesus is the Son of God. John chapter 17 said, none of the brothers believed Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, John chapter 17 says, that Jesus' little brothers, and by the way, they were half-brothers because they had the same mom, but they had a different dad. Their dad was Joseph. Jesus' dad is God. But John chapter 17 said that they mocked Jesus because they, quote-unquote, did not believe in him. It doesn't matter how good of a big brother you would have. If your mom kept telling you that your big brother was the son of God, you would go, okay, he's definitely the favorite, but son of God. Come on, I don't know about that. Right? Can you imagine, like if your, grand, if your big brother could do no wrong, you know some wrong your brother did. Can you imagine being Jesus' little brother? Like, not only could your older brother do no wrong, you couldn't even think of anything wrong with the guy. He's perfect. He's God in the flesh, right? And he's your older brother. Think about going to Hebrew school and say, why can't you be more like Jesus? Because apparently he's God, Right? <laughs> <laughs> So none of them believed in, in, in Jesus. They didn't. So Jesus would have never called James to be one of his disciples anyway. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing about the number of different people that were still alive that had seen Jesus after he had resurrected from the dead. And he gives a list of them as evidence to the church of Corinth that these people are still around. And the reason why he gives them this list is because if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They They saw it, and in that list of people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection is his half-brother James. So Jesus appeared to after Jesus was crucified on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. Then he was around for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, he ascended uh, into, into heaven according to the scriptures, Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> but during those 40 days, Jesus appeared to different groups of people and different individuals. One, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, which is the reason why in Acts chapter 2, Peter, who's preaching the very first sermon of the church uh, while he's preaching to a hostile crowd of more than 3,000 people, uh, the most convincing evidence that Jesus was the Son of God is because he says, This Jesus whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, as you yourselves know to be true. They didn't argue that point because they had either seen Jesus during those 40 days or they knew someone who had. And that was so compelling that 3,000 critics instantly become a devoted follower of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why I, as a skeptic in my 20s, came to the conclusion that Jesus really did raise from the dead. is because of how fast Christianity spread during a lifetime of eyewitnesses who could have disproven it. If it wasn't true. So James is one of those guys Jesus appears to. Now, James, being the oldest of Mary and Joseph's biological kids, would have probably been at the crucifixion with Mary, with John, with probably Joseph, his little brother, and with Simon and with Judas and with the sisters, right? So he's dead now, sad, tragic, right? Well, I guess he's not the Son of God after all. And then Jesus shows up a week later. To have a personal conversation with him. So yeah, he becomes a devoted follower of Jesus, right? Wholeheartedly committing to following Jesus with the rest of his life. In fact, James becomes the first pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. So I know that there's some traditions that teach that that Peter was the first. Peter did preach the very first sermon ever preached, but James was the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. James was the pastor. He was the elder. Peter's one of the elders. The other disciples were the elders. And by the way, there's only two people outside of the disciples that are ever referred to in the whole Bible as an apostle. Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle James. Like they're the only two non-disciples that were ever referred to as apostles. And when Paul decides he's going to leave Israel and start teaching that Jesus had resurrected from the dead to Gentiles, he comes to Jerusalem to get permission from James and Peter. And they give him their blessing to go do this, and they're really excited about it. 14 years later, Paul comes back because now there's a big argument among those who are followers of Jesus on whether or not non-Jews who become followers of the Jewish Messiah should now convert to Judaism as well. And there's a huge argument in the church over this. Like, it's like, it's, it's very, like, it's, it's tense. And this is the very first council of Jerusalem. And everybody comes to Jerusalem for this. And there's two sides that are both passionate about this, like, the Messiah is ours, and if they want him, then they have to become us also. And the other side says, no, we were the example for the rest of the world, but they don't have to become us to follow God as their Messiah also. They get to stay who they are. And there's a, it's very contentious. It lasts several days. And after listening to both sides of the argument, it's James that stands up and settles the matter. And what James says is, no. No. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to convert to Judaism. But Paul, we're going to ask you to teach this to the Gentiles for the sake of unity in our churches so that we can worship together, Jews and non-Jews, on the weekends. Can you make sure that they don't eat meat offered to idols, things strangled, drink blood, or abstain from sexual immorality? And Paul said, yes, that, that's, I've been teaching that anyway. That's, that's, that's absolutely fine. And that settled the matter, and it was never brought up again because James had spoken. James ends up being martyred for being a devoted follower of Jesus. And the way it happens is that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, by the way, James never leaves Jerusalem because James is the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. So he stays here his whole life. Um, But by the way, there's seven different sects of Judaism, or think of it like this, there's seven different denominations of Jews at their time, and all seven of them revered James as a devout man. He's actually referred uh, as by one of the historians as camel knees uh, because of how often he was found in the temple, morning, noon, and night, praying for the Jewish people to, con- to turn from their sin and begin following Jesus. He spent so much time on his knees that he developed calluses on his knees that were visibly noticeable, and that's how he became known as, as old camel knees. I'm sure they didn't call him that to his face. Uh, what they called him to his face was James the Just. So... Uh, some of the religious leaders were beginning to become devoted followers of Jesus. So the Pharisees called James the Just up to the summit of the temple and said, James, who everybody respected, maybe in their mind they're remembering that he didn't believe in Jesus because they said, we know that Jesus is dead. So please tell the crowd what you know about Jesus the crucified. And what he said is, uh, what he said is, is, is uh, it's in my notes. Here's what he said. Why do you ask me about Jesus? So he's standing on the summit of the temple. Why do you ask me about Jesus? He now sits in heaven at the right hand of God and will return on the clouds of heaven. The religious leader closest to him pushed him off the roof when he said that. He falls all the way to the ground, does not die. He pushes himself up off the pavement, and then the the guy up top, tells everybody to stone him. Now, everybody picks up rocks to stone him on the penalty of going to hell if they don't do what he says, right? So they all start throwing rocks at him and to stone him to death. And while James is being pelted with rocks, having fallen off the summit of the temple, uh, he starts praying the same thing Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. One of the other religious leaders says, stop, can't you hear that he's actually praying for us? And like this, this moment where everybody's like, what are we doing, right? And so nobody's throwing any rocks. And in the silence of that moment, a launderer, a launderer. By the way, this is from two different historians outside of the Bible. A launderer, you know, they have those bats that, that beat the, the rugs and stuff when they're, when they're cleaning those. You guys know what I'm talking about? A launderer comes out from the cl- crowd uh, with one of those bats and just smacks James right up the head and kills him in one blow. That's how he dies. That's the end of the sermon. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Just kidding. James wrote... One letter to the church. It's it. One. He's the biggest advocate for the Gentiles to be included in the faith. In this letter it doesn't mention Gentiles at all. Which gives evidence for the fact that this is probably written before the Apostle Paul came to get permission to go tell non-Jews how to follow Jesus. Right? Like it would have been one of the earliest ones. Because it's never never, Never mentioned. He mentions social justice more than anybody other than Jesus, defending the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. This guy knows the thing Jesus always preached. He was just a skeptic and now he's a fan, right? This would have been the very first letter any of the followers of Jesus ever read. So, all anybody has when he writes this is the Hebrew Scriptures. What our Jewish friends refer to as the Tanakh, what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. That's all they have, they have the Old Testament. And they have the letter James. That's all they have for a while. And we're going to be looking at the way he starts off his letter. It's the only letter he ever wrote. James chapter 1, and here's how he starts it off. This letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Like, he doesn't say the oldest half-brother of Jesus. By the way, give me some respect up in here. He doesn't do any of that. The, the word here is bondservant. It's when somebody chooses Uh, to remain in the household of somebody as a servant. He said, I've made a conscious choice to live the rest of my life in service to Jesus, my Lord. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. The Gentiles hadn't come to faith yet. This is very very early on. And what he does in this first chapter is he gives gives them three uh, different truths that then go on to shape the rest of his letter to all of the devoted followers of Jesus, who at the time were just Jews who had accepted that Jesus fulfilled the 308 different requirements of being the Messiah. And here's what he says. Uh, Here's the first truth, by the way, in that that that's Christians go through hard times. So I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you the same three truths that, that he shares. Uh, and the first one is that, that Christians go through hard times. I don't, they struggled with that back then, just like we struggle with it now. I, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, we feel like if we're, if we're following God, that everything should go okay in our life. And some of us are actually here right now because things aren't going good in our life. And so we feel like if we just go back to church, then God's going to fix everything again. And I don't know where we get this unconscious, uh, I, don't, I don't know, but we, we all kind of feel like that. I, I remember when Billy Jean and I, uh, early on in the early days of Grace Church, um, my contract wasn't renewed at the college I taught at, and then... Um, Uh, And and then a a church in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, offered me, they said, hey, I had spoken at a couple of camps that their teenagers had gone to. And the youth pastor uh, who had brought those kids to camp was now in charge of the pulpit search committee. And he goes, I know the perfect guy, right? Like, I, I know the guy. So he calls me and he goes, God's already told me you're going to be our pastor. Well, I just lost my job at the college. I've got no income. We've got 30 people coming to our house every single weekend. And we're about to open up shop for the very first weekend at the Holiday Inn in Brockton. And we got no money, no income coming in. Ryan was a year and a half. Billy Jane and I had made a commitment that at least for the first two years, uh, she wasn't going to work in an outside job, which meant that we had already made some really tough financial, financial decisions, and I, I, lose, I lose my job. And then this other church calls me, and so if you're looking for a sign, you would think that that, that's God saying, all right, you can go ahead and, and leave, but most of our friends that were in our every weekend Bible study still had not turned from their sin to begin following Jesus yet, and I knew that if we bailed on them now, like, would they ever try God to ever again? So I felt like if we left now, the only reason we'd be leaving is for money, and if I start making decisions based on money now, it'll never stop, right? Uh... And by the way, I want to thank God right now in the presence of you all that I never became a Baltimore Ravens fan. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the name of your holy name, thank you, Jesus, that I never had to cheer for the Baltimore Ravens. Oh, that is a huge blessing. Am I right, people? Can somebody say amen? Can somebody say amen? Up here in the house of God. I never had to become a Baltimore. And, and, but we had a lot of, we had a lot of uh, very uh, uncomfortable conversations, my, my wife and I. And I remember Billy Jane saying... Why is God doing this to us? We're doing everything that we think God wants us to do. Then why is nothing going right? Here's what I want you to know. In the very first letter ever written to Christians, the very first one ever written, right after he says, Hi, my name is James, the very next thing he says is, By the way, when crap happens... That's the very first thing he says. Look at verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters. This is his opening line. Hi, my name is James. Brothers and sisters. The very first thing ever written to followers of Jesus. Ready? When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When troubles come your way. He doesn't say if. He says, when they come. Now, this echoes one of the first things Jesus ever taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 5, in the first third of Jesus' most famous and first recorded sermon he ever taught, he says in verse 45, in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. It's a continuation of the thought before, but I'm going to start in the middle. Middle of the verse, but I didn't think, I don't want you to think I was hiding anything. But here's the middle, here's the next thought of Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. For he, God, your Father in heaven, gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. One of the first things Jesus said is, I just want to be clear up front before I even get started in my ministry as Messiah, right? That God allows the sun to shine on good people and bad people and god allows the rain to fall on good people and and bad people job said something similar job you know the the guy who like tr- struggles of job or the patience of job you you've heard of that that's actually after a guy in the bible who went through a whole lot of horrible things and 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 one of his one of his friends tried to encourage him by making him feel bad that happens a lot and then his wife says just curse god and die because i'm tired of listening to you whine and complain that happens every once in a while, right? Uh, but then he says, "Shall I receive only blessings from the Lord, and and not struggles, and and not like if God is good when things are going good, isn't God still good even when things are going bad?" That's what Joseph says, or that's what Job says. So that's that's what Jesus said. Like that, like listen, Solomon said it this way: "Time and chance happens to them all, right? Like some people, you." You got cancer because cancer exists in the world. It's not God screwing with you, right? Or you lost your insurance and you got in an accident and then, then you got a ticket and now you got court troubles, and right? Like, like this isn't God doing anything to you. We live in a broken world and broken things happen to, to good people and bad people and that's how James starts it. But the second part of that verse 2 says this, um, he says, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And I don't consider it an opportunity for anything good. Every time struggles come, I consider it an opportunity. I, I don't know. For what? Um, it's just not an opportunity. Opportunity isn't the word I would crap fest. That's the word I would use to describe what I'm going through right now, right? Poop hitting a fan. That's how I would describe what's happening right now. I wouldn't consider this an opportunity for great joy. Now, it goes on to tell us why, but what he's acknowledging, though, is that our attitude going into this is going to be the most important thing to determine how we come out the other side of this. That's what he's telling us. He says, consider this an opportunity. Your mental attitude toward your struggle determines what happens to you in your struggle is a point that he's trying to make, and you don't even have to be a Christian to understand that. It's just the way that people are wired by God to work. And non-Christians have also stumbled onto this. And I'm not saying Pat Riley isn't a Christian when I quote him in a second, but he did coach the Lakers for a long time, so I don't know if he loves God. Can I just put that out there? I don't know if anybody who likes the Lakers is on Team Jesus. Can I say that and not be blasphemous? All right, so Pat Riley, actually, he may be a Christian. I, I don't know, but here's what he said. He said, great effort springs naturally from great attitude. It naturally comes from a great attitude. And so what James says in the very first letter, the very first thing he says to any Christians is, when crap happens, I want you to change the way you think about it. Zig Ziglar said this, your attitude, not your aptitude, determines your altitude. And it rhymes, so it must be true. Right? He says your attitude, not your skills and ability, determines how high you fly is a point that he's trying to make. Do you remember when, when the psalmist said in Psalm 23... You, you've heard of Psalm 23 probably before. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my... Now, I'm not going to quote the whole thing for you, but mainly because I stopped right before I ran out of the words I had memorized. But in Psalm 23, he says this, and this is the famous part. He said, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... How many you guys, that sounds familiar? Amen. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? for thou art with me, for you're with me. He said, it changes my attitude. Why? Because I know that when I have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't mean you've walked away from me. And we feel that way. See, everybody wants to stand on the mountaintops all the time, but all of us are going to come off that mountaintop and we're about to walk into the, the valley of the shadow of death. And James is talking to us about the times when we walk into the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, every time you feel like you're about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I want you to consider this an opportunity, not a setback. It's an opportunity for great joy. That's what he says. God doesn't promise to keep us out of the valley of the shadow of death, by the way. God just promises to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That is how we see opportunity and struggle when others see nothing but pain. Pain is that we have somebody with us that others don't have with them. And then it gives us a very concrete reason why we should count it an opportunity for joy when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 3, and this brings me to the second truth. The second truth is this, Christians grow through hard times. The first truth is this, Christians, all Christians, fall on hard times. The second truth is this, Christians grow through hard times. Hard times. Verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, when is my faith tested? My faith isn't tested when everything's going great. Right? Your muscles don't grow when you never stretch them. I mean, truthfully, if I'm not mistaken, I mean I'm not an expert on, on lifting weights, and I'm not surprising anybody with that revelation either. But there was a time when I did lift weights for a little bit, right? Just a just a minute or two. One of the things that I did learn is that when you lift weights, you tear your muscles. And it's in tearing the muscles that your muscles rebuild stronger than what they were before they were torn. Am I correct on that? McCormick, right? Most jack dude in here, right? I don't know. There's other jack dudes in here. But you guys know. Right, but it's in tearing the muscle that the muscle becomes stronger. Yes or no? Yes. That's all he's saying happens to your faith. You want God to help you become a better Christian. All right, now you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, that's not what, not what I meant then you really don't want to grow. All Olympic athletes are torn down to be built back up. They are all pushed beyond what they thought their limits were so that they can grow their endurance. And then when when their stamina is tested, their endurance grows. And when their endurance grows, they become champions. That's all James is saying. Look at it. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You want God to make you the person you were always intended to be. All of us have somehow in the back of our heart that, like, I, I, I want to be this guy that I was made to be, this girl that I was made to be, that God created me to be. And God created you to be that person. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But what you need to know is if you're going to become that person, you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're going to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death differently than the way other people walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You have to walk through it differently because on the other side of the valley of shadow of death, my endurance is tested and my endurance grows and then I become complete, lacking nothing and spiritually mature. What God knew is by Billy Jane and I choosing not to go to Baltimore. We couldn't say that God forced us to stay here. So now we had no one to blame but us, right? And then by taking away our only source of income. And by the way, I went to real estate school and we flipped the house and ran off. And so I'm scrambling, right? And my next move is as a full grown man with a master's degree, I'll deliver pizza. I ain't above providing for my family. Hello. Am I right? you do what you got to do if you got to mow grass as a grown man you mow grass as a, as a grown man you do whatever you got to do to take care of your responsibilities but i remember this one time we had um we had we had um a mortgage was due and uh we had new money in the bank and uh everything from grace church like was on our credit cards and <laughs> Like, the money that we had in savings, it's all its all like, God, we're doing everything we think you want us to do, and you are not taking care of us right now. And our mortgage is due next week, and and it's $2,000, and we ain't got nothing. Like, what? There's not enough grass I can cut with my little lawnmower to get $2,000 before next week. So I called a pastor down in Rhode Island, and I've mentioned this story before, but I called that guy down in Rhode Island and I because other churches are helping us. Our sponsor church is is in Cape Cod, and churches start churches. People reproduce people. Churches reproduce churches. When somebody starts a church and it didn't come from another church, just so you know, that's where cults come from. Just stick that back in the back of your head. Alright, so our church was started out of another church who had already done everything they could for us, uh, right, but we're about to open up the Holiday in, and there's speakers and, and sound system and kids programs and, and mailers and movie nights and all different kinds of stuff that we were doing. And uh, I met him, pastor of a large church. I'm like, oh man, if this church could help us, that would be amazing. That would be great, right? Like you go to your rich uncle when you're starting your business and you're like, invest in my business, this is a great idea. He said, I believe in you, but I'm not gonna give you any money. And you're like, ah, oh, I freaking hate you. Okay, you don't say that, but you think it. Um, because you don't say it because you're going to come back later and it doesn't matter. They might change their mind on your way home. I mean, you want to be nice to them, but anyway, so I meet this guy for lunch and I'm going to pay for lunch, but I got no money to pay for lunch, but I'm all right with this investment because he's got a big church and if their church helps us out, that's going to be amazing. And so we go to, I go to lunch with him down in Rhode Island, Smithfield, actually, and then, and then uh, he tells me at the end of lunch, he says, Sean, you know, our, our church is not in a place that we can, we, can, we can help you guys. And I'm like, but your church is in a place where you could help us guys, right? I am thinking that in my head. He says, so we're not going to partner with you. And I'm like, then what the freak am I doing here, right? And then he says, but would you come, before you go home, would you come back to the office? And I'm like, no, I don't want to go back to your stupid office. You already said you're not going to help us. But, but so I said, yes, I'd be happy to come back to your office. What am I going to do? You know, so I go back to his office, and and he writes my wife and I a personal. He doesn't support Grace Church a dime, but he wrote us a personal check for five thousand dollars, which got us through the next several weeks until some of the churches that were sponsoring us were able to start sending in the. Re- this is why we help other churches get started because our church is the product of fifty-four other churches. I don't know if you guys know that, but there are fifty-four other churches that over over five years helped us in the early days to make sure that our church would not fail. Yeah, we're clapping for the kingdom of God right here. But Billy Jane and I were going through the valley of the shadow of death, and we had, we had a mortgage coming up and, and no solution. And what I thought my solution was was a job. And what God taught me through that pastor of the church in Smithfield is what you really need, Sean, is to just keep trusting me because I am with you. Amen. Now, when God just supernaturally, from my perspective, provides the next three months' worth of mortgages for me, out of the clear blue. What do you think that did for my faith? Did that make me more bold for the glory of God or less? More confident in the goodness of God or less confident in the goodness of God? And that's a lesson I only learned because I was in the valley of the shadow of death. That's all James is saying. Count it all joy. Excuse me, don't count it all joy. That would be psychotic. You're not supposed to get happy when crap happens. You don't have to get happy when a loved one dies. You don't have to be happy when you get cancer, when you lose your job, or when somebody steals your business out from under you. You don't have to be happy about that. You have to consider it an opportunity, though. That's what we have to do. We have to consider it an opportunity. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be complete, lacking nothing. Testing produces endurance. Endurance brings me to spiritual maturity. An athlete unwilling to be tested is an athlete who does not grow. An athlete who does not grow does not win. And the same is true for the Christian. You've heard Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Tim Tebow used to write it on his eye black. Steph Curry put it on his sneakers before. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many of you guys have ever heard that verse? Raise your hand. I can do all things through Christ who's And how that's most often applied is, I'm a six foot white guy. I can do all things through Christ. I can dunk now through Christ who gives me strength. Right, And I didn't dunk, so maybe my faith wasn't strong enough. Or, right, How that's applied is that God will let me do anything that I really want to do, if I really want to do it enough, and I trust God enough, he's going to help me do whatever it is I, I want to do. But I want you to see the verses that lead up to Paul saying, through Christ who gives me strength. And here's what he says in verse 11. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. What's Paul saying? I know how to live on the valley, and I know, on the mountain, and I know how to live in the valley of the shadow of death. There have been times in my life where I've had everything I've needed. There's been times in my life where I've had nothing that I needed. That's what he's saying. There's been times in my life where everybody in my family is doing great. And there's times in my life where nobody in my family seems to be doing okay right now. I've learned to live when it's great. I've learned to live when it's bad. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty stomach. Listen, man, if you legitimately don't know where your food, the rest of your food is coming from for today, your life did not turn out the way you wanted. By the way, God brought you to this church to solve that problem. Come see us before you go, and we'll buy your family groceries. But Paul, he saying, listen, the, the mountains or the valley of the shadow of death. I've learned the secret. What's the secret, Paul? Verse 13. For I can do anything. I can do everything. I can go through anything. Why? Because of Christ who gives me strength. That's what that verse means. That verse means that I can suffer a losing season because of Christ who gives me strength. Not that I can win every game. That I can go through cancer. That I can go through the loss of a job. That I can go through my business being stolen. I can keep going. Why? Because Christ will give me strength to keep going. That's what we do. We keep walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And when you walk into the valley of the shadow of death, I think there's a moment in every one of our lives where we sit down because we're just shocked that this happened. Right? And depending on how severe the death is in that valley, it derails us for a minute. What Christ gives me the strength to do is to stand up in the valley of the shadow of death. And what Christ gives me the strength to do is to just keep putting one foot in front of the other until I get to the other side. That's what he does. How do I do this? by changing my attitude toward my circumstances, recognizing that's an opportunity for me to grow into the person God always intended me to do, to be. But what if you can't see any good coming out of this? You ever gone through the valley of the shadow of death and you're like, well, I can't find anything good in this. That's Billy Jane saying, why is God doing this to us? Why is God doing this to us? I don't know why it is, but whenever we go into the valley of the shadow of death, by the way, when we're on the mountaintop, it's because we were really good at our business. But when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, now it's God's, now it's God's problem. All right, like We're the ones who are the reason for our success, but God's the reason why we're not successful right now. I don't know why we do that. We take credit for all the good stuff, and we put all the blame on God for all of the bad stuff. Verse 5 says this, if you need wisdom, if you need to figure out what to do next, if you need wisdom, then this is in the same passage of Scripture, Count it all joy when you fall into your struggles. Because the testing of your faith works out endurance. Endurance, when it's finished, gets you to the place of spiritual maturity. But if you can't figure out how that's going to happen, let him ask, of, ask God. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. And he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. God's not going to be upset if you look at him and say, why? Why? God can handle your why. You, you, there's no doubt That God's intimidated by or lack of faith. Like he knows exactly what's happening in your heart. I think he would prefer you to just open up to him about it. It's okay for you to go to God and go, I don't know why you're doing this to me. Even if in the back of your heart you know in your head that it's not him doing this. It just feels sometimes like like he is. He can handle your doubt. It's not like God up in heaven is going, like if you don't even believe in him, right? Or you're struggling or or whatever you're going, that the valley that you're in is causing you to doubt whether or not God even exists. I think it's okay for you to look at him and tell him that. Tell him that. God up in heaven isn't getting mad that you're struggling with your faith or your belief that he is good. He's not mad at you for this. God up in heaven isn't freaking out because Joe doesn't believe he exists. I think God's fairly confident in his own identity. You're not going to rattle him. He's got big shoulders. He's God. So ask him, what do I need to do different? Our secret sauce is that God's given us the Holy Spirit who promises us the answer. We go to God in our trouble, trusting him to walk with us through our trouble, asking him to grow us by our trouble. Where will we find the answer? The same place we always get the answers from God. God's word, God's people, and God's spirit. When those three things are saying the same thing, bro, jump. There's water in a pool. That's a jump off the high dive if you're afraid. Doesn't matter. Anyway, somebody got that metaphor. That's how God always speaks to us. Just this past week, it was Thursday morning. Billy Jane and I were talking about something that's going on in my heart that I'm struggling with uh, to work through. And... Uh, yeah, so we're just talking about this, and like, well, let's just do this. Let's just, let's just just, do that, this thing. See, I do have a filter. I'm not telling you the thing, right? I mean, I want to, but it's, it's none of you, but whisper it. Yeah, okay, because then if I whisper it, nobody can hear. Shock. That's good. That's pretty good. And then right after I get done talking to Billy Jane about this Thursday morning, I have a friend of mine from San Francisco who hasn't texted me since March randomly text me, and what he texts me is the same thing Billy Jane said. That's how God speaks to me, right? That's, that's what he does. If anybody lacks wisdom, just ask. God will tell you. He'll give it to you. Um, one of my kids, who's, who won't be named, is still stuck between two colleges that he's been accepted into both. <laughs> Not saying his name, because then i got to pay him five bucks. But one of my children, he's been accepted into two schools, and we have paid the deposit on both. So both schools think that he's coming. But one of them are going to be sorely disappointed. And, you know, he's thinking about maybe ROTC, Air Force, or whatever. Like, he's got different options in in soccer, and I'm not going to tell you which kid. But um, (laughs) both schools have everything that he's looking for. And so what we're doing is is, uh, we're just giving it time to pray. And at the end of this time of prayer, I'm just going to ask him, what does your gut say? And whatever his gut says is what we're going to do, and we're going to trust God, right? Because he's been praying. It's the word of God, counsel from his family. Go for it. That's the end. Like, Because truthfully, if God blesses him, it's going to be because of the condition of his heart, not the location of his butt, right? Same thing is true for you. But James gives us this warning, by the way. Here's the warning in verse 6. But when you ask him... Be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything that they do. You've got to choose who you're going to be more loyal to. So if you're going to ask God for wisdom, by the way, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Because if your faith is wavering, if there's anything else that's more important to you than God, when you ask this, God is not obligated to give you an answer. What I mean is this. You've got to decide before you ask God to give you direction, you're going to have to decide if you will for sure do whatever it is God tells you to do. That's what you have to decide before you ask. So here's the question I need to ask. What if what God tells you to do is different than the blog that you read? What if the thing that God asks you to do next conflicts with the values of the party you're registered for? Politically. What if what God asks you to do is different than what your heart has been telling you to do? What if what God asks you to do is different than what your best friend told you you should do? You see what I'm saying? That's what this verse is talking about. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, then you have to predetermine that whatever it is you hear from, God's word, God's people, God's spirit, you will do even if it flies in the face of everything you intended to do before you asked. And if you don't intend that before you ask, according to James, God will not answer you. And some of us, I think maybe that's why God ain't speaking to us right now. You're asking God what you should do because you just want another option in case your path doesn't work out. What I really want is God to bless what I want to do. And God goes, nope, I don't play that game. I don't play that game. You've got to decide first. Will you do what I say, yes or no? If the answer is yes, then he gives us wisdom. God holds the bar high. And that brings me to the third and final truth that he gives us in James chapter 1. James chapter one verse twelve. Christians find purpose in hard times. That's what we do. So Christians fall in hard times. Christians grow through hard times, and Christians, Christians find purpose in hard times. Have you ever heard this saying? Before we read this, have you ever heard this saying? God had a reason for this. Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say that to somebody after they just went through something horrible, like the death of a loved one, a child, or 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 the loss of. God had a reason for this. I, Every time I've ever heard that, I wanted to throat punch the well-intended Christian who's crushing the heart of this person and turning their heart against God. When you say God had a reason for this, what you're saying is that God in God killed your family. God didn't intend evil. God doesn't bring death. He doesn't do this. God will use evil and he will use death. That's what he does. I hate that. God had a reason for this. It's not true. God will use this for a reason. That's true. And James says this in the very next passage of Scripture. James 1 verse 12 God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. That's what we get on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. We get a crown. We're like, we're rewarded. We're like, that's where we get the gold medal, is on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. You want the gold medal? Then you got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If you want to be a champion Olympian, you've got to have the muscles torn down. You've got to be struggling. You've got to wake up earlier than everybody else. You've got to be pushed further than you thought you could be pushed. And that's when you become a champion. And on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, that's where the reward is. Verse 13, and remember, when you are being tempted, when bad things happen, when death comes into your family, when you suffer loss, when your business is stolen, when your spouse betrays you, Remember this, do not say God is doing this. Do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he has never tempted anybody else to do wrong. God's not the author of death. We're the ones that brought this into the world. That doesn't mean that God didn't see it coming. That doesn't mean that God can't use it. That doesn't even mean That God won't discipline those who are his. What God doesn't do is bring death and sin. He's not the originator of either one of those things. Those come from us. When we chose to walk away from the source of life and all that's good, we found death and all that's bad. Verse 14 says, Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away, and these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled my dear brothers and sisters you know what comes from God I'll show you verse 17 you want to know what comes from the hand of God to you here's what comes from God's hand to you whatever is good and perfect that is a gift coming down to you from God our father who created all the lights in the heavens and he never changes he never casts any shadow over you He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all of creation, have become his prized possession. God does not bring evil to you any more than I would bring evil to any one of my kids. God does not hurt you. Right? God will help you. I'm not the one who knocked Ryan down off the crap. I just said his name. I owe him five bucks. I'm not the one who knocked him off his bike when I took the training wheels off. I allowed him to get into a situation where I thought there was a possibility he might get hurt. So my guarantee is not to keep him from ever being struggled, from ever being tested in his faith and his endurance growing so that he can be full and complete, lacking nothing. My commitment is that if he falls off the bike when the training wheels come off, I'm there right away to help him out, to get him back up. I'm not the one who pushed him over. Are you with me? God is not the one that pushed you over. God knew you'd be in a situation where you might fall down, and God allowed you to get into that situation. He's not going to stop death and sin because that would cause him to take away free will, which would be unloving of him to do, which goes against his nature. He can't act against his nature. So we're stuck with the world we created. We are reaping what we have sown in this broken, cursed world. But he's walking with us through it. Um, that's not to say God won't bring discipline when we sin, but it does mean that God doesn't bring the sin to us that comes against us from other people. And it's not true that God brought everything to you for a reason, but it is true that God will use everything that comes to you for a reason. That's what's true. And here's the really cool thing that we get to do with it. We get to become athletic trainers. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. These are the last verses that we're reading. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says this, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all... What's that last word? We never feel comfort unless we're in sorrow. You'll never know God is the source of your comfort unless you're willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death with a different attitude, you'll find that God is your comfort because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Right? And I find comfort that only comes from God. Verse 4 says, He comforts us in all of our troubles. How many of your troubles is God willing to comfort you in? What about the trouble you're going through right now? That one too? Yes or no? Yeah. So that we can do what? Comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God gave us. Here's what I get to do. When I come out the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, I'm able to look back to the other side of the valley to those who are about to go into it. And I can yell back to them. Count it all joy when you're about to walk through this valley. Count it an opportunity for joy coming into this valley. Because I promise you, (laughs) there's something good on the other side. You can keep going. I get to comfort others. All of you have gone through hard things. And all of you have been brought out the other side. And there is somebody in this church who's about to go through the hard thing you've already come out the other side for. And as a follower of Jesus, you now get to be a peer coach and mentor to comfort others with the same comfort God gave you when you walk through that same valley that they're about to walk through now. I'm gonna ask all of us, I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God, but I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me, and I'm going to give you a couple of things that you can pray to God about while your head is bowed and your eyes are closed. The sermon today isn't about the struggles that come as a consequence of our sin or stupidity. We're talking about the struggles we didn't bring on by the things that we've done and the struggles that come from the sins of others that we did not encourage. And my question for you is this. What would you say is your biggest struggle, your biggest fear, or your biggest obstacle right now? name it to God. God, this is what I'm struggling with. Name the valley of the shadow of death that you're in. If you're in the valley of the shadow of death, some of you are still on the mountaintop and that's great. Maybe you can think back over a valley that you've already come through. And your your prayer right now is just gratitude. But those of you who are going through it right now, your prayer is, God, give me wisdom. Help me to know what my next step is. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, and does not hold back. God, show me what I'm supposed to do next. If you're not a devoted follower of Jesus, can I just add that it might be possible that God's using this valley of the shadow of death to get your attention? And if that's what God's trying to do, I'm asking you, dear God in heaven, give him your attention. If you've been running from God and you're done with that, then your prayer is maybe you already believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, like James came to believe maybe you're already there. and So your prayer would be, Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me for all of my sin. I'm done running from you. I want to be caught by you. Take away my sin. Forgive me for it. Save me from it. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. I'm all in. You've got the rest of my heart, the rest of my life. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you how you're doing right now in the valley of the shadow of death. If you're a follower of Jesus, how have you responded to this? What has your attitude been, and do you think God would ask you to change it? If so, tell him you're willing for it to be changed. God, help me to trust you that this is an opportunity for something better on the other side of this. Can you make that your prayer? And if you've already come out the other side, how could God use this to be growing you? Excuse me. Are you open to the idea of of sharing your struggle? and your comfort with others who are still going through it. I'm asking you to step out of the crowd and to get involved. Put yourself in a place to meet other Christians in this church family because some of you guys are dying on the inside and you're going through something that you think is unique to you that nobody else in here has struggled with. And I'm telling you, somebody else is going through this. There's somebody else in this church that you need right now as a friend. And there's somebody else in this church that right now needs you as a friend. But if this church is just a show on the weekends for one hour, you'll never reach your potential. They'll never get what you have. You'll never find what they have to share with you. How could God be growing you right now through this season? God, I pray that you are moving in our hearts, giving us hope, helping us to stand up. I don't know who feels like they just got a right hook just out of the blue by life right now. I don't know who's got a mortgage coming up next week and they've got no job. I don't know who's got court problems. I don't know who's in bad debt. I don't know who's in legal trouble. I don't know whose marriage is falling apart. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, you, you, you do. And you brought them to this sermon for a reason. I pray, God, that you would encourage them, that they would look at this as an opportunity for joy. They don't have to be joyful about this, but this, they have to see this as an opportunity for joy on the other side of this. God, give them hope. Let them be surrounded by other people in our church family who've gone through it, who can help them. God, those who are in the middle of it, I pray that they would look in the scriptures, that they would share their struggle with other Christians and ask for counsel, and that your Holy Spirit would confirm what's true in their heart. This is my prayer. I ask this in the great name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.